This is the Bird Hugger Podcast with Katherine Greenleaf, the podcast for people who love birds. Welcome to the Bird Hugger Podcast. I'm Katherine Greenleaf, and I'm so glad to be with you. I'm on board for a full 30 minutes of talking all things birds and restoring native habitat. What happens when a burnt-out college professor living in New England decides to become a wildlife rescuer and rehabilitator? Find out on Bird Hugger, the podcast for people who love birds. Join host Katherine Greenleaf, who has been rehabilitating injured wildlife for 20 years, and hear how you can turn your backyard into a native oasis for birds. Hi there, everybody. I think we've got a great show for you today. We're going to talk about how to get started with bird watching. We are very lucky to have one of the experts with us today to answer some questions. Stan Tequila is an avid birder and naturalist and a prolific author who has written numerous bird identification books. He is also an accomplished wildlife photographer and conducts group nature photography tours throughout the United States. His philosophy on bird watching is to relax, have fun, and enjoy the birds. And now I'd like to introduce Stan Tequila, author, naturalist, and wildlife photographer. Stan, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Well, this is great. Now, you have written quite a number of books about birds. How many books have you written in total so far? It's a little over 200. Is it really that many? Wow. (laughs) Yeah. That's fantastic. Um, Yeah. My first book came out about 32, 33 years ago. Where has the time gone? I don't know. But since then, I've been kind of actively pursuing it. And then lately, the last, I don't know, five, six years or so, I've been doing second and third editions of a lot of uh, the original books also. I see. That is great. You've published a book called Birding for Beginners, the Northeast. I understand it's now available on Kindle. Is that correct? It's available on a bunch of different uh, formats. Unfortunately, see, the publisher takes care of all that. They have me working so hard that I don't have time to be following everything else that, you know, that they're doing. But they tell me now and then what's going on. But generally speaking, I've, I just continue on uh, doing what they tell me to do. And, and it all right. works out. I know it sounds kind of funny, but it's just the way it is. You know? Right. So I understand. I'm a, I'd be called a working professional. So I work writing books and a wildlife photographer. So I'm constantly going and constantly producing. And then I turn all this over to my publisher, you know, after I write it or and all the photos or whatever it may be. And then they turn around and they do their magic with it. And then just about the time I've completely forgotten about that book that I had done, then they come out with it. <laughs> and so, you know, because I've moved right. on, I've moved on to other books. And so <laughs> it's a good working relationship. Right. Believe it or not, We've done uh, 51 episodes of the Bird Hugger podcast, and this is the very first episode discussing birding. Oh, wow. Yeah. So I'm very excited about that. We're to finally be getting to this topic because I know a lot of my listeners are avid, not just backyard bird enthusiasts, but avid birders. And a lot of them would like to get started birding. So could you tell me what would you say are some character attributes you would need to be a successful birder? I mean, I imagine patience would be one of them, right? Well, yes and no. There's a lot of things are racing through my mind right now when you mentioned that. You don't have to be a birder to be interested in birds because birders tend to be a little bit more focused. 
and kind of zeroed in on a number of things. Just having a, some general interest in birds is what could, you know, really have a lifelong enjoyment of uh, seeing the birds. And so really just having a curious mind and, and open thoughts about things, you can get out and enjoy the birds uh, around you and or feed them in your yard. Or what's become really big these days is people traveling to see different birds and things. So it's you can really kind of fit it to however you want it to be. That is great. Tell me about a life list. How do you put together a life list? I don't keep a life list. I don't keep a list of any kind of birds. And so, like I say, there's different types of birding activities, and not all of them kind of revolve around a, a list of what it is you're seeing. And in fact, I would say it's a very small part of what the vast majority of people do. There, sure, there's a number of people who keep a list, and they, they sometimes those lists grow. So they'll have a backyard list, they'll have a year list, they'll have a different list for different reasons. But that's not me. I'm a naturalist. And a naturalist is kind of a little bit of everything. And so a list of birds doesn't really have any kind of application in my life, but knowing how to identify them, knowing which bird is which and their natural history that kind of comes about with them, that's what interests me. I've got a pair of Cooper's hawks nesting in my backyard right now. And I watch them and it's endless entertainment to see what they're doing, how they're doing it and all that stuff. But none of it has anything to do with a list. And watching birds is really kind of a, one of those things that it's a way of just taking the enjoyment of these birds and kind of making it your own. And you can do it at all sorts of different levels. Right. So what is the best way to get started bird watching? Your own backyard. By far, you know, backyard bird feeding is more popular than any of the sports, people watching sports combined. So backyard bird feeding is very um, popular and there's all sorts of access to it. There's specialty stores just on bird feeding, even stores that are not special. You know, I mean, local hardware stores have bird feeding stuff. And so that's how common it is. And just starting to feed the birds in your backyard and you get to start to enjoy that. Now, <laughs> I can say this because I'm older, I'm in my 60s, and it's an age thing. It just seems like when people get older, they get really interested in it. For me, it started when I was just a, a teenager, but there's something about it when you get older, you kind of get more interested in the birds. It's kind of one of those phenomenons that is unexplained. Right. So for someone who, let's say, they want to sign up for a trip somewhere to watch birds with a group of people, mm -hmm. can you name some equipment you would need to get started? All you really need is a pair of binoculars. That's really about it. There's so many good binoculars out there these days, and you don't have to spend a whole lot of money. Be prepared to spend, you know, $250 or so, maybe $300, and you're going to have a decent pair. You know, protect those. Don't bang them around and use them. And that's really all you're going to need. You'll, you'll need a good field guide, a field guide by me, hopefully. That's really all you about need. You know what? You do need one more thing, a good attitude, an attitude of getting out there and enjoying it. Like-minded people are going to be there with you. And it's a great way to make friends and to um, meet new people and get outside and appreciate and learn about nature. And that's what kind of, as a naturalist, that's what I'm all about. That's great. So could you recommend a type or brand of binocular that people could use? Say, yeah, there's a whole kind of variety out there. I use Vortex. It's a name brand that has got excellent optics, reasonable price, 
you can find them at a bunch of places. There's a link on my website too to Vortex. They have nice binoculars, you know, in the $250 to $300 range. You don't need the most powerful. You don't need those like 10X, you know, which is a 10 times optical zoom. You really don't need that. An 8X would be plenty. And they're smaller, there's lighter weight, they're easier to hold up, easier to carry around. And the easier it is for it to carry around and look through it, the more you're going to use it. So something like that really works out well. Right. Now, your book is great. The book about the Northeast, because you have it organized by color of the bird. Would you recommend that for the first step in identifying a bird that you don't recognize? looking at the color first? Yeah, so that's what I've done. I've developed a whole series of books of the birds by their color because most field guides are set up by taxonomical order. And the taxonomical order assumes that you know things. Like, for example, Baltimore Orioles. You must be familiar with this bird, right? Right. Yeah, well, it's in the blackbird family. Well, how would you know that? (laughs) You know, there's no way of knowing. And so in traditional field guides, you'd have to look in the blackbird section in order to find an Oriole. And nobody knows that. So therefore, what I did was I did field guides that are by color. So what color is the uh, Baltimore Oriole? Orange. So look in the orange section and guess what? There's the bird. And then a lot of times birds are what's called sexually dimorphic, meaning the males don't look the same as the females. The females oftentimes are a dull drab color and they may be in a different section like the brown section because they look differently. And then in all of my books, I have page references referring back and forth between the males and the females, making it real easy for a beginner to pick it up, figure out what bird it is, because oftentimes what they do is they say, well, I just saw a flash of orange. I don't know what it is. So with my field guides, you just look in the orange section until you find your bird. It's just more intuitive that way to to, uh, get started. Yeah, that seems to make a lot more sense. And then from the color, do you go to size of the bird or shape of the bill? Yeah, exactly. The size of the bird going from the smallest to the largest. And then you just kind of page through that section as you going from the smallest to the largest. You know, small would be like a warbler type species and large would be a crow type species and a robin would be like an in-between. So it's a real intuitive way to kind of figure out what bird you have that you're looking at in your uh, backyard or on a vacation or something like that. Right. And I suppose other clues would be what the bird is eating, what kind of nests they have, and also the location they're in, say in a forest as opposed to a field. Right, right, exactly. And I cover all that in the uh, text part of it. I also use uh, photographs to uh, illustrate the book. I take a lot of those photographs myself, if not all of them. And those photographs are you know, helpful in identifying the species while it's in the habitat that it's in. And then I'll oftentimes, what I do on my books is that I'll have, let's just say cardinal. Everyone knows what a cardinal is, right? But the male is red. So he's in the red section. And then I have a small inset picture that says female, page, whatever, because she's kind of brown. So she's in the brown section. And so you just flip over to the brown section and it's all cross-referenced back and forth between the two, you know, because on the female page, it's got the male and the page that he's on because he's in the red section. So you kind of go back and forth like that. And it's a real quick and easy way in which to learn your birds. Do you rely on sound as well when you're trying to identify your bird? Well, that's funny. I do, but I wouldn't be considered a beginning birder. I can bird almost exclusively by ear, just by hearing the birds. And I can identify 
I think, I'm just kind of putting my thought to it, I think I can identify every single bird around just by sound. I find that most of my birding is done by ear, but that is really an advanced kind of thing. You have to have spent so much time with these birds because many birds have more than one call or song. Some of the birds can have upwards of a thousand different songs or calls that they have. So there's a lot involved there. Now, you say in your book to attract birds to your yard to plant native plants, which I love. Could you talk about that for a moment and why it's so beneficial? Well, native plants are going to be more suited to your area, for one. So they're easier going to grow. They're going to survive harsh winters if you have those winters. And if they're producing fruit, it's usually a fruit that's edible for the birds and they're used to it and they can recognize it and they can eat it. And so therefore, they kind of automatically go to it. And so those are really important aspects of it. You know, they provide flowers for nectar for insects, and then they have, they'll have a fruit for the animals after that. So you have a variety of different things you can do with it. Right. So now nature is pretty smart, isn't it? While the female of the species may be duller in color, it helps her to blend in with leaves and branches when she's sitting on the nest so she doesn't attract predators. This is called sexual dimorphism. This sexual dimorphism has the male brightly colored and the female not. But there's species where both are very colorful or both are very drab. Take blue jays, for example, both the males and the females. I mean, when you look at a blue jay, you know, can you see the difference between the males and the females? No, you can't. You don't know which one's which. And uh, however, like Baltimore Orioles, on the other hand, are very different. The males are very colorful, but the females are kind of moderately colored. And then you've got that total opposite of it where you've got house finches where the male's bright red and the females are brown. So there's a whole variety of things in there because you know what? In nature, there's no one specific way in which to do things. There's many different ways to solve the problem. So what would be one of the advantages for a female blue jay to be brightly colored? These birds, we don't know if all of them started out to be brightly colored and then some of them evolved to the point where the females are duller or if it worked out that the males evolved to be brightly colored. We don't know. And there's probably a combination of both of those things going on there. So we don't know exactly what's how that came about. But what we can surmise from it is that the bright colors are double-edged sword. So there are nice studies that show the northern cardinal, this is a common bird that we all know, the male is bright red, female is brown, and male cardinals are disproportionately killed by predators such as hawks than they are over females. And it's presumed it's because of his bright colors. So these bright colors on birds are an asset and a burden at the same time. And so you have to kind of balance that out. And each of these birds are doing that. They are balancing it out and trying to survive in nature. Our modern birds, the ones we have, have been around, and like I said, anywhere from three to eight, nine million years, some of them upwards of 11 million years. That's a long time, and they've been doing pretty darn good. They've had a lot of opportunities in which to kind of change and adapt and to survive over that period of time. Because believe me, there's plenty of species of birds that have not survived. In fact, there's more species that have not survived than there are surviving right now. Nature is demanding and it's very uh, difficult for these birds to survive. They have to do certain things to survive. And without it, they will perish and and the species will go extinct. Right. Now, your book covers 54 species common to the Northeast. Could you maybe talk about a few of them? 
I know you've got Red Wing Blackbird in there and the Downy Woodpecker. So with all my books, first of all, I'm mainly known for my field guides of the individual states. So it may be, you know, the birds of Maryland or maybe the birds of Massachusetts or, you know, New Hampshire or whatever it may be. And then what I did was I've kind of broke that down into like backyard birds. So the book you're referring to is a book for beginners to start. You have to start somewhere. You can't just jump right in. And this is where in the past, you know, 30, 40 years ago, field guides were really either divided up to Eastern and Western United States. And they had so many birds in there that you would never see if you lived in Maryland, you know, or wherever it may be. And what I did was I kind of narrowed that down and did individual states. And then from there, I broke it down even further to like a beginning guide that is even narrowed down even more to just the birds that would be most common in your backyard or birds that you would find nesting near your house, that type of thing. So I have a whole variety of different books. And that's just one, call it a gateway drug. <laughs> you know, it's a gateway of getting yourself into <laughs> watching birds. And then from there, you can pick up like, you know, if you live in whatever Massachusetts or something, you can pick up the birds of Massachusetts. And then that's much more comprehensive. And then you can move up from there. I've, I've got field guides just for the raptors and field guides just for all sorts of different species. So now for the beginning birder, what are some things that you should not do? Think that it's too hard that you can't do it. <laughs> Think that you should be doing something like keeping a list. You don't need to. What you should do is just enjoy the birds, enjoy what they do. So backyard bird feeding is a relatively new thing. It started shortly after World War II. So we've only been feeding birds for about 60, 70 years as a society. It was really only when we as a society could grow enough food to feed the nation, plus had some extra that we came about to feeding birds. Because you think about it, you know, if your family is starving, you're not going to be <laughs> giving your food away to the birds, right? So it's only when the United States became more prosperous after World War II that this bird feeding came about. You know, nowadays, it's become quite common and people enjoy attracting birds to their yard so that they can see them, observe them. Try to keep in mind that most of these birds, as I mentioned, have been around for millions of years and feeding them, they don't need you to feed them. You're feeding birds to attract them for you to look at them and enjoy them, to hear them sing, to watch them raise their young and get that pleasure out of it, of watching this and bringing nature closer to your home where you can see it. That's what bird watching is about. It's not about feeding the birds because they need you for survival. That is simply not true at all. All of our modern birds that we have have been around much longer than people have and have done just fine. So the first thing is to do is just to feed them for the right reasons. And that right reason is because you enjoy seeing them. I think we need them though. I think we need them to kind of center our lives and balance our lives and make us feel better and show us, you know, uh, the beauty of nature, that type of thing. Right. I couldn't agree more. So tell us, what are your plans for this spring and summer? Will you be traveling anywhere to go birding? Oh my, I've been all over the place already. I'm going and going and going all the time. So my latest thing is I just got back from Wyoming where I was uh, photographing sage grouse. The sage grouse are a, um, a very unique species. There's 
Well, unfortunately, there's only like 20,000 of them left. This is a species that's dropping like a rock population-wise. Right now, I'm traveling to uh, kind of the northern area of where I live to photograph rough grouse. Rough grouse are drumming on logs right now to attract in a, a mate. And so that's always a challenge to be able to see that. So there's a lot going on and it's such a busy time of year. I just enjoy getting out and doing it all. And as a wildlife photographer, I look for any opportunity to capture the next greatest picture of uh, whatever it is, uh, bird species out there. That's great. So tell us about your all-time favorite moment where you actually observed a bird that you'd been looking for. Oh my, there's so many of them. I've been doing this for almost 40 years now, and there's so many uh, (laughs) different times. I honestly, what keeps me going is every time I get a new, just doing something with a species is always for me new and special. I really like that. There's so many of those, um, I don't know what you'd want to call them, encounters or something that I just find each one of them has got a unique story behind it. And I appreciate all of them. I appreciate all the birds and all the wildlife. In fact, as a naturalist, I don't focus just on the birds. I'm just as interested in the plants and the insects and all those things. So uh, the birds are a big part of it, of course, but I find nature just absolutely thrilling in all aspects. That is great. So tell me, do you do any uh, guided tours yourself? Could people sign up to go with you? So it's hard to explain. I'm kind of in a transition here. For many, many years, like 30 years, I've been leading birding trips where we go bird watching. And now I've kind of switched over and uh, have stopped the bird watching and mainly doing photography tours now. So people come along and we go and photograph different birds. And so I've got a bunch of different photo tours that I do. I work for a company out of the UK that does uh, uh, trips all over the United States. And so they send people over from Europe and I take them all over the place to show them different birds. And then I offer uh, trips on my own also. All of that can be found at naturesmart.com. It's my website where I'll have the trips listed there also every year. And there's a variety of different things you can find there. That's great. Do you also have your photographs for sale? I do. I have a whole database in which you can uh, look up the birds. I try really hard to keep that up to date, but it's really very difficult. But it's a pretty good approximation of everything. And you should be able to see anything there and purchase prints or for publication or whatever it may be. And is that also naturesmart.com? Yeah, it's all at naturesmart.com. That's yep. great. I, I try to keep it easy and try to keep it you know, together. <laughs> yeah. It's funny. I also write a syndicated newspaper column. I do a, a variety of syndicated radio shows and things like that. So it's a whole bunch of stuff that I do that kind of all comes together and just kind of pulls together to be one living and one life. But it's a lot of different spokes on the wheel to uh, make the wheel go round and round. Right. That's great. Now, if people want to order uh, one or more of your books, where do they go? You can find all my books at my website at naturesmart.com. But also, you know, your favorite, I like to support local stores. So your your local bird store should have uh, whatever state you may be in, should have my birds. I've done all the states except for, believe it or not, except for Utah. So all the other states, there are books for it. Any of your local uh, bookstores will have it. So if you're in whatever state it may be, and they're always like by the state. So it's birds of Illinois or birds of Massachusetts or birds of you know Connecticut or whatever it may be. All of those are uh, available at your local bookstores. 
Of course, there's this little thing, what do they call it? Amazon, I think they call that. <laughs> and uh, you can always uh, find all my books there at, at Amazon too. Well, that is wonderful. Stan, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us and discussing bird watching. And maybe we can have you on the show again another time. I would love it, Catherine. Thank you so much. That's great. Thanks. If you are enjoying this show and like what we do, please help us out by subscribing or following us on your favorite app to access our free show. That way you'll get notified of what's coming, you'll never miss a show, and it will help us in the ratings. Join Americans everywhere in the one-third for the birds movement. Dedicate the back third of your yard to birds and other wildlife. Make this area a quiet zone with no leaf blowers or lawnmowers. Plant native trees and shrubs so birds have plenty of insects to eat. Create a safe haven for birds to nest and raise their young. You will be rewarded with many hours of bird watching fun. For more information on One Third for the Birds, go to the Bird Hugger page on Facebook. And that's it for today's episode, everybody. Thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Have a great week and enjoy the birds. Bye for now. Bye for now.